from RTE Radio. I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. He's dressed all in white with a diamond-encrusted watch on each wrist. It's quite a look. You know, the great actors, the great method actors, <laughs> really are the characters. They, they, they enter the, the mind of the characters so that they can then really persuade others that that's, that's who they are. I think, I think America had Elvis and we had Luke Kelly, and that's it, you know. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the restaurant where everybody gets along. How to spot a traitor and celebrating Luke Kelly's 40th anniversary. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's been getting along with everyone since, like, forever. Let's start with Oliver Callan's monologue from this morning's, uh, Oliver Callan. Can't believe they didn't take the opportunity to call the show The O.C. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. The joys of more nonsense from our fabulous health service. The HSE are calling for people to come out and apply for the GP visit only card. Um, this is they're, they're saying there's lots of people eligible who may not know they're eligible. So they've done one of those graphic things where they've created um, a kind of a, a sample sample person, average, an average couple. Meet Neve and Sean. They're married. They've got two year old twins. Okay, together they earn 104,000 euro a year. The rent is 2,750 per month, nearly three grand a month is the rent, and they pay just over 3,000 euro a month for childcare. They are eligible for a GP visit card according to the HSE's official Instagram and that's the example they've given out and um, but some people are kind of reacting to this and going hang on okay so they're earning 52 grand each right 104,000 their take home pay is 3,300 euro so as a household they have 6,600 thereabouts okay they're spending 5,783 between childcare and rent. So Sean and Eve have 107 euro left every week to cover groceries, lunches, dinners, clothes for the twins, electricity bills, mobile phones, internet, life insurance. And that is assuming neither of them has a car. So we have to factor in petrol and or car tax insurance. And people are very, are kind of going, does it, does, are Neve and Sean okay? There's definitely a couple called Neve and Sean in Ireland, isn't there? They know what they're doing with these, these algorithms. But that's enough of the funny stuff. Let's get on with the serious business. Now, because this is a serious show, of course, the main story of the day uh, continues to be Marcus Rashford's astonishing um, trip to Northern Ireland. I mean, discover Northern Ireland. The ads are working. He went on a 12-hour tequila bender, it says here in the Irish Sun, before passing out at 3am and then he called in sick hours later, as we know. And you heard, um, you might have heard Des Cahill saying in the news that Manchester United now says that he's taken responsibility for his actions. What is the responsibility? A fine of €760,000, which is two weeks' wages, and he was dropped from from the FA Cup tie on Sunday and they now consider the matter closed. Now, Des mentioned there is some detail in the Irish Sun today because 30-year-old um, waitress Sarah Adair from Belfast was telling, uh, has been telling the Irish Sun how she served the footballer lunch uh, one of the days and there's a helpful timeline graphic here in the Irish Sun today. He arrives in on Wednesday and uh, he's hanging out. He has a quiet night on Wednesday, Thursday then. Sarah serves him lunch and the, his entourage says, come on out with us for the night. They go out for a night and uh, she says, uh, they then went on a weird night out which ended with her having to put him to bed after he drunkenly dropped huge wads of cash on the floor. 
So, I mean, a fantastic service from the from the hospitality industry in Northern Ireland. They'll serve you lunch and they'll even tuck you into bed afterwards, fully clothed. So it's quite pass out. I mean, he goes to bed at three in the morning and he's on his private jet then by 7am. So he only has two hours sleep into the private jet, lands in Manchester Airport at 8am and he suddenly realises, I'm not really able for trading. I'll uh, be calling in sick today. But what other detail was Des alluding to? He's dressed all in white with a diamond encrusted watch on each wrist. It's quite a look. Along with six or maybe seven silver diamond chains and two massive diamond rings and had two identical iPhones on the table. So I presume one of us is work phone, which he was clearly ignoring. Uh, the other one was for all the other crack. Uh, so he's drinking tequila, but he does order food. He has a bruschetta, but he doesn't touch it because he doesn't like tomatoes with the seeds in it. Ah, Marcus. You big baby. But there you go. That's the detail in the Irish sun. And nothing illegal, but he is an England player and that's where he's going to have to face. A phone and a watch for each hand. More money than cents, as my grandmother used to say. Meanwhile, there's good news for fans of Lil Nas X and Irish art. A Waterford artist is in the news today because he's created the cover art for rap superstar Lil Nas X's latest single. Uh, it's called Where Do We Go Now? So if you go on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're going, the Waterford artist, uh, his name is Aaron Fahey. He created a crayon-inspired design for the Grammy Award-winning artist's new track. And it's, it features Lil Nas X standing in a green field, dressed in white, holding hands with his younger self. It's one of those kind of art things that looked like a kind of a child, a child's drawing, but it has artistic merit. It was picked up by his record label. And here's Aaron Fahey chatting to RTE.ie about this. All my stuff that I make, I do from my bedroom. To see that kind of travel across the world and be recognised is mind-blowing, I suppose, is the, the best way to put it. It's still a very um, surreal kind of feeling to know that a lot of people have seen this artwork. For someone like Lil Nas to recognise it, I find it very hard to process. I thought that maybe it was going to be used like in the background of a video or something. Um, but it turned out to be single artwork, which was mind-blowing. It's It still really hasn't set in. Has it a mind-blowing? I hope he got paid for it. He doesn't seem to confirm that, but Aaron Fahey or people belonging to you are, are listening. Uh, the, the millionaires, if they're... You know, surely, surely he was paid for it. Surely. I mean, why wouldn't he be? Also worth noting, Elon Musk, that upstanding model of civility, restraint and fairness, wants to put tech in your brain. Reading here about Elon Musk, tech billionaire, he says his Neuralink company has successfully implanted one of its wireless brain chips inside a human for the first time. Um, who is this human that volunteered for this? Do they know about it? I mean, Elon Musk seems like a very trustworthy chap, doesn't he? Stick things into our brains. No problem at all. You know, he's the fellow who looks like all the bits sewn into him by plastic surgeons are desperately trying to leave. No, that's that's the image I always have of Elon Musk. Uh, so yeah, neuron spikes and nerve impulses. Um, the, it's a patient. So he says it's only going to be for patients who have uh, reduced or, or no use of their limbs. Sure, tech billionaires. It always starts out nice, doesn't it? And then stuff happens, like Twitter, for instance, or whatever it's called now. It just sounds like a porn site because that's really what's on it. Uh, going by what there, what's been in the news over the last few days. Don't look it up, for goodness sake. Sound advice from Oliver Callan there. Obviously not yet controlled by Elon Musk's brain implants to bring the morning sermon from Oliver Callan to an end. Vacant and derelict site levies are supposed to deter long-term abandonment of sites that could otherwise be used for housing. But why is there an under-collection of these levies? 
Today with Claire Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell looked into this and gave his insights to Claire this morning. Let's begin with Dublin City Council. Last year, vacant site levies which were owed were just over 5.2 million. So of that, just 263,000 was collected. Council did much better on derelict site levies. They were owed almost 1.6 million on that and they collected just over a million. The council pointed out that the vacant and derelict sites uh, legislation means that unpaid levies will automatically become a charge on the land and they'll remain a charge on the land until the full amount is discharged. In Limerick, Derelict sites, just over 1.4 million in levy was, was due at the end of last year. How much did they collect? 286,000 in 2023. On the vacant sites in Limerick, by the end of the year, 2.16 million was due and they collected just 127,000 euro. Now, Limerick City Council did tell me there are legal actions on 50 accounts being taken at present. Right, that might be one explanation, but there are significant under collection rates there in Limerick and Dublin. And you got more figures for us? Galway City say they were owed 8,400 in derelict site levies last year and they managed to collect that amount on the vacant uh, sites 283,000 in in Galway and they collected 28,000. In the county they were owed just over 60,000 for derelict levies. They didn't manage to collect any of it but they told me it is a lengthy process to try and get that money from owners of properties. Cases can become protracted and that can lead to significant delays. Uh, Just to give you one more, Waterford uh, City Council told me in 2022 um, levies invoices raised 400, just over 430,000 but they were unable to collect any of this due for 2022 and there are a number of active legal cases being taken there. Now before I bring you one or two more examples Claire, I did speak to one long time campaigner on this issue, Frank O'Connor from the Anish Agency who along with his partner Jude Cherry, they've been documenting dereliction, began in Cork but it's spread out nationally and they say the figures show there are very clear issues now with the system of levies and the way they are collected. It's no surprise to, to me and you to, to learn that there has been very, very little collection of dereliction and vacancy levies again. And it's really a wasted opportunity. You know, we still haven't got a full data set across the country. Uh, we're still not registering all the derelict properties. And, we're, and also because we're not registering them, obviously we can't collect the money. Uh, and the 7% levy across the country would make a huge difference if it was collected every year. But I mean, I've spoken to you before about this, that really needs to be revenue collecting the levy, because if the local authorities have had the powers in place since 1990, and if they haven't got it right so far, surely we need to look at a different approach. Is there any merit in a softly, softly approach where councils or authorities might be saying, look, we're trying to work with people as best we can. We're using it as a last resort. I mean, the idea of, of working with owners obviously is very important and, and the idea of a softy, softy approach has been tried over and over again. I don't think it works. If it works, we wouldn't have such an epidemic of vacancy and dereliction. The law is in place and any law that's in place should be enforced. And the idea that someone is above the law over someone else obviously is, is a big concern. So for me, no, I think you need to look at full identification of properties, full registration and full collection. And obviously, if people can't do something with their derelict property, then obviously there could be a, a measure put in place like compulsory sales so that property comes back into the market. Obviously, we're not looking to take property off people, but what we can't afford in the middle of our worst housing emergency to have vacant homes dotted across our urban areas in areas that were totally need them lying vacant, lying derelict and wasted. So to me, no, we need enforcement and we definitely need the revenue collection as well. 
And the other thing, I suppose, what concerns me, I've been looking at this now with my partner, Jude, for, for about five years plus, that we have all these different ways of doing it across the country. We're quite a small country, so surely we should look at standardising the overall process at this stage. Yeah, that seems to make sense, just to have a, a national approach to all of this from Frank O'Connor there. So, Brian, you've one or two more examples for us now. Uh, Cork City Council placed 1.1 million euro of derelict site levies uh, last year. Just over under 150,000 was paid in outstanding levies. Uh, and then on the vacant site levies, Cork City Council just over 430 thousand euro issued last year. Um, 427,000 euro of that was collected so did quite well on vacant site levies. In total Cork City Council is owed nearly 5 million euro and they're presently um, taking legal cases against 13 sites they tell me. Uh, Cork County Council again uh, they pointed out that 525,000 euro owed on the vacant sites levy and 157,000 of that is under appeal to on board Planola and they're continuing to try and collect their outstanding amounts, they tell me. Just finally, Claire, I also got a comment from the Department of Housing. They say they continue to liaise with local authorities. They have initiated a review of the Derelict Sites Act, and that might be to examine improvements in the legislative provisions and the way they're applied. On the vacant site levy, they point out that there is a new residential zoned land tax. This was brought in by the Minister for Finance in the Finance Act in 2021. It's expected this will be in operation in February 2025. Brian O'Connell talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the undercollection of vacant and derelict site levies. Paula McCann is legendary singer Luke Kelly's niece, and she spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line on the 40th anniversary of her uncle's death. Do you remember Uncle Luke, Paula? Yeah, I mean, uncle, you know, he was he was he was our uncle. Um, I mean, we we didn't see him as as this big iconic iconic superstar, as as, as you will. Um, we spent a lot of time with him. He would have spent a lot of time with my grandmother in my grandmother's up in White Hall. Mm-hmm. Myself, my two brothers, you know, we would have been up and down all the time. So he was Uncle Luke. He was the man that we, you know, he we my brothers have my brother. My own brother Luke says that he learned his little bit of love cricket from Luke because it didn't matter what sport was on the television in White Hall, and it was it was the day before sports. You know, Sky Sports and all of that. Yeah. So whatever was on was on, and and my own brother Luke loved cricket as a result of Uncle Luke because Luke loved cricket. You know, um. So yeah, he was our uncle. We loved him. He came from a very loving family, and uh, we were lucky. I was saying to Figra, she and on Saturday night at the 40th anniversary concert in Vicker Street. That um, like when we were kids, we all mm-hmm. just went off to to the shows, show because that's what you did. You know, and it was yeah. a big deal to go to a concert back in the day. But for yeah. us, it was you know, it was John, his dad was playing, my uncle was playing, and there we were. So, yeah, he was a lovely, 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 loving uncle and came from a very loving family. So, it's wonderful memories of them. So, the connection then is your is your mother. Yeah, Luke's Steph, sister. Steph is my mum. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. and that's that's two th- sisters. Okay, and, and, and th- brothers. And thankfully, Bessie is still alive. Um, she is, yeah. yeah. Myself and Paddy. Paddy, the only two left. As, yeah. as you know, Jim passed away a few years ago. Yeah, more yeah. than last year. And then the youngest, John, very suddenly the year before that. So, And was there, um, when, when you visited your grandparents' house, was there a lot of music in the, in, the, in, the, in the house? I know they lived in Sheriff Street, Lawrence O'Toole, and then when those buildings were demolished, they moved out to Whitehall. But was there a lot of music in the house? There are always, when Luke, there was always... Um, there was, 
but when they when they were growing up, Joe, I suppose that the singing came from my my grandfather. My grandfather was a was a fantastic singer. Loved singing. Was all. I mean, if you talk to people, you know, who knew him, um, you know, he, they would say he always had a smile on his face, a real yeah. gentleman, and always singing. So my grandfather sang all of the time, from the time he got up in the morning to the time he went to bed at night. And he gathered the kids around him when he came in. From, he'd a, he'd a permanent pension job in in Jacobs. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, he would gather them. That's what they did. That was their entertainment, sing songs in the evening time. And um, then when they got a radio, he'd sit them down and, and they, they learned all these, these songs. So the singing was always there. Do you know, that was part and parcel of the kind of the, the family entertainment. And also, and as you say, your grandfather, Luke's father, your, grand, your grandfather, he was also called Luke. And um, there's there's a, he, he there's an anniversary this year, Paula. I don't know if you're aware of it, but I spoke to Jimmy about it when I was writing a book called Children of the Rising. Your grandfather, yeah. Lou Kelly, 110, 110 years ago this year, when he was 10 years of age, 110 uh-huh. years ago, he was cycling across O'Connor Bridge in Dublin. Okay, yeah. a, he was only a, he was a messenger boy even at that young age. Okay, and and the the uh, volunteers had imported guns from Hoth mm-hmm. and they brought yeah. them first to Marino and then they brought them in and then there was what became known as the Bachelor's Walk Massacre indeed. Um, Massacre, yeah. 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 And, um, and indeed Jack Yates is a, a painting. But um, your, your grandfather um, was cycling across O'Connor Bridge and a bullet mm-hmm. hit him. A bullet yeah. hit him. He was brought to hospital and the reason I came across this incredible story about this incredible man, Luke, he he in the in the the in a scrapbook belonged to one of the children that was killed in 1916. Two years subsequently, she uh-huh. kept she kept a newspaper cutting. I don't know why, but she kept a newspaper paper cutting Hello. about this ten year old this 10-year-old boy called Luke who had been shot. And the newspaper cutting says, Luke Kelly, 10 years of age, shot in the lung, crossing uh, O'Connell, O'Connell Bridge. He is not expected to survive. Well, thankfully, he did survive. And um, he went on to wear a magnificent uh, uh, family. So there's, there's, there's your family, Paula, as you well know, is absolutely full, full of uh, history. Let me bring in Chris Cavanagh. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Joe. You perform the Luke Kelly Experience. Is that a, what we're telling me about yeah. that? Yeah, the, the band is called the, the Legend of Luke Kelly. And uh, I've been doing it for years now. But sure, we had a great night, uh, two nights in Bricker Street there uh, at, the, at the weekend, Thursday and Saturday. And uh, the Kelly family were up on stage with us and everything. And John Sheen was in with us. And uh, the audience were fantastic. And is it is it just songs that were made famous with Luke, or is it his life through his music, or is his his life story as well? Well, it's 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 kind of a bit of everything, and there's a yeah. little bit of history behind each song, and uh, I, I, we don't really talk about it that much. But you know, we'll we'll throw out a few facts here and there, but it's more about the music and keeping the music alive and Luke's memory alive, you know. So uh, there's a lot of songs that that Luke recorded and. You'd never have time to get through them all in two hours, but we, we try and fit in as many as we can. And it's still in demand. Yeah. Your the, the the show, the Luke Kelly experience, is in demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's very much in demand. We're playing the, uh, up in uh, the Grand Opera House now uh, this Friday up in Belfast, and yeah. down the Cork Opera House on, on Sunday. So they're nearly sold out as well. So Luke is very much in demand. I think. <laughs> I hope you know? you're. Well, if you're going to the Opera House in Belfast and Cork, I hope you're going to the National Opera House in Wexford. 
Oh, we will be. We were there before. Yeah, yeah, it's a fine venue too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of Wexford songs in the set too. So uh, Bun Clody and Kelly from Kalan and, and Chris like that, for people for people who might not know Luke, what what is it about his uh, performance, his singing? What is it that connects so deeply with people? Well, I, I think it's just uh, the man was made to, to sing and play uh, music. He, he was just a musical genius and he was so full of passion uh, with his rendition of any song, uh, let alone folk music. He could sing anything. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he just had a natural gift. I think, I think America had Elvis and we had Luke Kelly and that's it, you know. Chris Kavanagh of the tribute band The Legend of Luke Kelly talking to Joe Duffy this afternoon on the 40th anniversary of the death of the legendary folk singer. Michelin Bib Gourmands, the restaurant awards that are one step away from stars, were announced yesterday and five new entries for Ireland were among the bibs given out. This morning, Oliver Callan spoke to one of the recipients, chef Nicky Foley from Sullis Restaurant in Dingle, Cunlihiri. Congratulations to you and the team. When when do you find this out? Where are you finding out now in the news? I found out yesterday morning someone tagged me on social media. They um, actually don't contact you directly. They just post it up right? on their own social media outlets. It's so secretive. <laughs> and, if you're lazy, and, if, and if you're lazy with your social media, you mightn't find out. <laughs> I know. Well, that seems to be all happening. Well. And also, if you, you want to trust it as well. But uh, look, it's definitely true. We can confirm now. It's definitely true, yeah. Uh, it's great. Delighted. It's fantastic stuff. Tell us about Solace, uh, in because uh, in Strand Street in Dingle in County Kerry. It is, yeah. We opened it up six years ago now. From next April, it'll be our seventh year of open. And it's booming, thank God. Yeah, and it's a small small plate concept restaurant with Spanish-infused dishes with a lot of local producers from Dingle also. Brilliant. Now, do you have special things about it? You, you do small plates, isn't it? Like a tapas plate. Like tapas plates, yeah, and a few little larger sharing plates and that, yeah. But most of our produce would come from within the peninsula itself from small artisan producers in Dingle. That's really important, isn't it? Very important. And then, like a lot, also we have our own beehives. We have four beehives and, well, three to four, depending on um, the bees. And um, we have two polytunnels and all our own chickens as well. And the polytunnels for for vegetables? For vegetables, yeah. Very good. And your own chickens? And our own chickens, 20 chickens there now. I was out this morning trying to find two of them in the neighbour's field, oh so I found <laughs> this is what running around mean. there this morning, Oliver. This is what Michelin guide stars are always doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you caught the chickens? I caught the chickens. Oh, They're back heavens. in the pen. They'll be okay. <laughs> you wouldn't want to get too attached to them, obviously, because no. you're in a restaurant. After... They're just for eggs, Oliver. They're just for eggs. <laughs> I was wondering. I was going, 20 chickens. I was actually counting in my head going, how many is he planning to have for lunch? But you're, you're currently closed, aren't you, for your winter break? We're, we, yeah, we're, we, we closed January and February for the winter time to give the staff a, a good long break. And we're back open on February the 27th. Do you have loads of staff? Because you're, you're running hens, you have vegetable patch, the beehives. Yeah. Well, this year now we're going to increase our staff up to anything between kind of 15 to 16 staff members. We're going to open up for lunch this year. From St. Patrick's weekend, we will be open for lunch and maybe brunch as well. Oh, wow. And, yeah, uh, to uh, kind of you, offset the costs and that, you know. Are you, do you have accommodation issues like a lot of places do for, for restaurants? Well, we, there, there is huge accommodation problems in Dingle, but we're very lucky now. we got a house this year for staff, so we, have, we can house up to like maybe two to three staff this year now, which is a huge added bonus to us. When you say we've got it, so the restaurant is organised? The our, our restaurant has organised the, the house, yeah. Wow, that's the way we're yeah, going now, isn't it? That's... 
yeah, that's unfortunately that is the way. But if you want to keep striding forward, you kind of you got to find something for the staff to live in. You know, there is a shortage all over the country. We're just it's not just Dingle. You know, it's everywhere. Oh, for sure, sure. Ryanair are buying houses uh, near the airport. Well, well, we, we, <laughs> Dingle, you're renting the houses. That's yes, we are only renting them. Uh, <laughs> we're not you, at that stage yet, Oliver. No, no. Well, you know, you've, you've got the beep gourmand now, and uh, you know the hens might be looking for a place. Um, <laughs> you've, you, you must have great staff then and you've got your full complement of staff we have we have some wonderful staff you know and it stems from Anne who's my partner also uh, from yeah. front of house and a lot of the staff are with us now from there is maybe five staff that have been with us from day one when we opened the restaurant so it's very good they're obviously not local if they're needed to rent there so they're from around the place are they they're from around the place yeah yeah. Okay. But there's a few people that's that's from Dingle, like so. We're we're we're, we're lucky that way as well. That's great. Yeah. Anne, Anne Connell is your front of house. She she's uh, from Waterford. She's a Waterford woman. No, she's a Kilkenny woman. She's also my oh. partner in crime. Yeah, in life. So yeah. Very good. It 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 seems yeah. to be the case, doesn't it, for these kind of places that um, there's lots of husband and wife teams. In your case, a couple uh, running thing running a mission. Yeah, well, it's good because, you know, I'm at the back of the house. She's at the front. Well, the kitchen is open anyway. So when you come into the restaurant in Solace, it's a small little building. It's only 30 seats and it's all open. So it's, yeah, but it's good. Yeah, I think that's the way. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to do that because she can convey what the food is and what the, the ethos is in front of house, yeah. like, which is nice for people to come in, be, for, for them to feel comfortable. Yeah. You've been in this Most industry important. a fair while, haven't you? I have been in it a long time, yeah. Travelled. Tell us your history in the kitchen. Well, I was in Spain for five years in Cartagena and then I moved to London and I did about 14 years in London in some of the top-end restaurants in London and then came back home. So, yeah, it's a long journey to get to where we are today. Anywhere in London we might have heard of? Yeah, a few places. We were in, I was in Bentley's for a good few years mm. with Richard Corrigan. Oh, I did yes. a little stint with Raymond Blanc and with D&D as well. Yeah, some high-end places. Sounds like noisy kitchens. Very noisy kitchens, yeah. Very noisy kitchens. Not like the kitchen that we run today now. We've our lessons are learned from that kind of management. <laughs> oh, is that right? You've changed the you've changed the culture. We, well, we, our, our restaurant is it's all about love and tranquility in our building, you know. And I think that conveys onto the the staff. Then can convey that to the customer. Like it's okay. not a stressful environment. I'm just thinking because in a restaurant, you know, there it almost there's a school of thought that it requires a bit of theatre, which might be you know, roaring and shouting to get things out and done on time? Uh, I would say no. No, no. I think it's just nice, peaceful, calm, collective and, you know, that conveys, no, to the staff, to a customer who comes in, like if the staff are nervous and that, mm -hmm. you've got a mad chef screaming at them. I don't think it works <laughs> anymore, you know? It doesn't work <laughs> anymore, no. It doesn't work anymore, no. People don't need it, do they? You don't need the extra stress in life, you know. There's enough stress already in life. And how do you, you achieve it, though? Yeah, there is plenty of stress. And you don't expect to find it in Dingle, even though I'm sure uh, for people who live no, in well, Dingle, the air Dingle is a special Dingle is a special place in itself, like, you know. So I think we're, we're to be even based and living in Dingle, we're very lucky and blessed anyway. So we're, yeah. It's great. And I've heard people raving about Solace, by the way. But how do you achieve um, the kind of quiet or, or more relaxed kitchen? Because if there is an urgency... What are you, are you going to mime at someone? How does that work? No, <laughs> I think it's just the communication. I think with the staff that have been there for so long, everybody knows what their job is right. and everyone is happy to be able to do that job. And the dockets come in and it just, because there's no set format, you know, if the dish is ready, it's not like you're coming in to sit down to have a starter main course and a dessert. It's kind of like, you know, if, if, if you're in and you're eating four or five dishes and one dish is ready, it just goes out. Like there's no set way for it to come in or come out of the kitchen. Like, 
It's a friendly and, and loving environment, your kitchen. Friendly, loving and humane environment. There you have it now. Sounds great. That's newly bibbed chef Nicky Foley from Solace Restaurant in Dingle talking to Oliver Callan this morning. The BBC's smash hit reality game show The Traitors finished up last Friday and this morning Claire Byrne asked Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin and author of How Confidence Works to explain how to spot a traitor. What are the qualities that make a good one a good traitor? Well, so, so we're a group species and, and the greatest threat to us in evolutionary terms was being expelled from the group. And so it's a great source of stress. So um, it, it, it's very dangerous being a traitor, but also can be a huge advantage because you can you can get personal advantage. So the, the, the best way of becoming a real traitor, a real spy, is to be able actually to trick yourself, to persuade yourself that you really believe that you are the, 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 the honest uh, member of the group. So self-deception is one of the best ways of deceiving others. You know, I, yeah. I, and it's funny you say that because I did notice that in watching the show, that the ones that were really good at being traitors, absolutely, well, they spoke openly uh, to camera about convincing themselves that they weren't a traitor. And I think yeah. that that is probably the least stressful way to do it because otherwise you're just in a sweat 24-7. That's right. And, you know, the great actors, the great method actors <laughs> really are the characters. They, they, they enter the, the mind of the characters so that they can then really persuade others that that's, that's who they are. And uh, so it, 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 it's fantastic. The reason it's so engrossing and so fascinating for people is precisely because we are so dependent on other people. And in fact, the, the evidence is our brains actually developed, the frontal lobes of our brains actually developed to mainly to try and deal with understanding other people and, and what, groups of people and, and their behaviour. Mm -hmm. When I was watching it, I thought that I just couldn't cope with the stress of being a traitor. I'd probably hold my hand up on day one and say, look, sorry, it's me and that's fine, I'll go home. But some people really relished the role of being a traitor. Would you be concerned about people like that? Well, look, <laughs> the, the world, yes, the answer is yes. If, the, if, my, if, if my daughter was marrying one, yes, <laughs> or, or my son marrying one, I absolutely would. Because uh, that capacity, you know, for enjoying deceiving other people is, is, is part of a dimension, if, if you like, of of uh, the extent to which people care about other people, the, the, you know, the, the degree of, 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 of trustworthiness that they actually have. If you actually enjoy being a traitor, even though it's a game, uh, you, you have to slightly worry about your trustworthiness. Mm. <laughs> so, so you don't really want someone in your family who really enjoys being a traitor. Um, now, in a game, it's, of course, different, but you have to kind of slight, slight kind of concern there, I would have thought. How, how do we, <laughs> what are the telltale signs? Are there any? Well, I tell you what, in, in a situation like that of, of stress where people are, doubting you people are suspecting you it's it's very it's very difficult if you are if you like an honest person and, and really genuinely trustworthy it's very difficult for you not 
to show telltale signs of anxiety or maybe even self-doubt and, 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 you know, say, oh, maybe I am guilty. All, all the kind of conflicting thoughts that comes in a conflicting situation like that means that the last thing that you would expect of someone like that would be consistently cool, smooth, persuasive, you know, a, you know, apparently uh, totally confident, apparently without any any concerns that they might, uh, you know, be, be suspected. So that overconfidence, which is a huge, it's the, sales, it's the salesman's selling uh, fuel, if you like, is overconfidence. That kind of overconfidence for me would be a tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if that, that person is just too confident, too absolutely smoothly uh, persuasive. I, I, I wonder if it's him or her. And look, for the rest of us, let's just say we're all working together as a team. Is it a human tendency to not want to believe that someone on that team might be working against us? Oh, it's, it's, you see, the thing about being the team or the tribe is it's, it's tremendously consoling and actually creates hormones that we've all heard of, like oxytocin, uh, that, that bind us and make us feel good. And that sense of working together is just really a, a very primitive mood elevator, you know, and it's, it's the sort. And so the idea that someone... Uh, in the, is deceiving you within that team, maybe free riding, maybe maybe betraying the team. I mean, that is it's not just a kind of oh dear, that's bad for the team. It's a it's it's a it's a personal it's a personal attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you because because when you a team that really works together, there's a certain merging of egos goes on. So you have so it's a threat to the extent that you're you know invested in that team. It's a threat to your. your just, you know, a real threat to your ego, to your self-concept. And that, that makes it so painful. And, of course, then, if you don't know who it is... I mean, I'm thinking last night of Jeffrey Donaldson, someone was secretly broadcasting the, the DUP meeting from oh, Belfast yes. last night. I yeah. mean, didn't know who it was. <laughs> and I'm just thinking the absolute consternation and everyone saying, my goodness, we're being betrayed from within. That is a, a fundamental and primitive fear yeah. that we have as, as a group species. Yeah. Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin, telling Claire Byrne how to spot a traitor this morning, or indeed any morning. Comedian Jason Byrne was in studio with Ray Darcy this afternoon to talk about Last One Laughing Ireland on Prime Video. The game show gathers comedians and directs them not to laugh. Something Jason found a little stress-making. Yeah, this was a highly stressful programme to be involved in. It was because uh, I, I, So you weren't allowed to laugh while you were telling a story and you couldn't laugh at anybody else telling you a story. So you couldn't... There was absolutely zero laughing in there at all. Right. So if you can imagine in a room, so we obviously can't see any cameras, we can't see any directors. It feels like there's just the 10 of us in there. We can't even see Graham Norton. And there's just, well, silence and talking. Yeah. Like, it's like so intense. Like, and you're really going, don't laugh, don't laugh. Like, let's say, like when Deirdre Kane was up doing her piece, we, had, we while she's doing it, we had to say stuff like, this is very funny and we are totally laughing at it inside our heads, Deirdre. We do apologise. You are hilarious. You're a genius. And we have to keep saying that to everybody. Now, despite the critics didn't like it, but this format has, has, has worked. <laughs> what are you laughing at? No, it's like, do you know what it's like? I actually predicted this. The, oh my God, the Irish critics are unbelievable, aren't they? The minute, the minute LOL Ireland was written anywhere, I could just see 
Queen rushing for their pens. Rubbish, what a load of crap. Them be so embarrassed. Now, I don't read the. I would yeah. never read reviews. Okay. What's the point? It doesn't get yeah. you anywhere. But everybody's watching it. Yeah. That's Everyone's the thing. That's watching the thing. That. And, so, and this has been a success all over the world. Yeah, critics don't have any power anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's the social media and it's people. So they're all listening to go, yep, no, they don't. But, but even Graham Norton said, because we interviewed him about it, yeah. like, on paper, it doesn't make sense. No. Because part, as you mentioned already, part of the whole laughing thing is it's infectious. So we all yeah. join in. Yeah. And you as a comedian, when you're coming to the funny bit, sometimes because you know what's coming next, you might laugh. Yeah, yeah. That's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And especially if I make up something up on stage, I'll just laugh laugh yeah. a little bit along because I know I'm, I'm making it up there and then. Yeah. But it was so intense. And I think that the Irish are really enjoying it. And can I say, as well, like we're getting messages from, like it's, it's on the States, Australia, yeah. Canada. It's global. They're all loving it. <laughs> they really are loving it. But I think especially what the Irish are loving about it is that it's so intense. We're like, like everybody that's watching goes, oh my God, I was so, I, I was so embarrassed for you because I knew you wanted to laugh and you couldn't. And it's that intensity that we're loving that no one's allowed laugh. So we're actually laughing at the fact that no one's allowed laugh. Yeah. It's been like, remember down the back of mass as, as kids? It's that feeling yes. where you're literally trying not to cry laughing at your mates who are messing and you're yeah. trying to keep it in. As I remember, when I was in school, there was the, the desk, two to a desk. Remember those old desks? And it was all one thing. Yeah. And our English teacher... He used the was word. Was that the one where you had the ink in there? Yes, the ink well, yes. You had that. And I was sitting beside, I was sitting beside uh, a guy. Yeah. Can I name him? I can, yeah. Uh, can you name him? Porrick O'Hara, right? He's not it's, still alive. And he, he was a messer. He Are your a... classmates alive? Are you? <laughs> oh, I didn't know they would all be alive. I thought you were the last one. <laughs> so anyway, sitting beside him, he was a messer. Uh, and the English teacher uses the word perverse. Now, oh. the only way we ever used the word perverse was, you know, yeah. slagging people, you pervert, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So he started laughing. Oh no! And but trying not to laugh out loud. But but we, the thing started the shaking, shaking. The right? shaking. So whatever the eye line was, couldn't see him. Saw me. Oh, Dar- no. Darcy, come up here and explain why you're laughing at the word perverse. <laughs> Did you have to do that? I had to do that. Oh my god! No. Yeah. I mean, I got. Ca- I was. I was always laughing in school. But I used to have great crack doing this, and I can apologise to people in my class, like Kenneth Newman and all. They're all still alive and doing now. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I used to do this in school I mean Matt's class I used to love doing this I would if if somebody made a noise or did anything I'd go Miss I cannot work in this class like this Kenneth Newman over there has just been shouting out right there and I can spot him for you right there Miss and I swear to God I got kind of kicked out of class at least four times a week and he's just standing in the class looking in the window going what you do that for or I'd pinch somebody beside me and they go what and I go no I can't continue <laughs> My lessons with this kind of carry on. It's immaturity, miss. And she they throw she throw them out. She just literally throw them out. That's brilliant. Oh, it's great crack. Yeah, I had great crack in the eighties. Oh so it's 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 doing a bomb. It's it's there. Uh, yeah, on it's prime. Doing, it's doing really well. Yeah. I mean, it's and we can't say who won. Oh right, yeah, yeah, because some people haven't seen it. Some people haven't. And yeah. spoiler, you know, you, we live in a world where you can't talk about anything. Anymore. Yeah, and it, look, people people are just enjoying the madness of it all. I mean, everybody in there is very very funny. You know, yeah. like. Max Savage and Tony Cantwell and Martin. I can't remember them all, but anyway. Yeah. And Amy Dave Huber. Savage eats his breakfast and his lunch out of his pocket. Yeah. It uh, really is a show you'd have to see, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's one of them. And then you and Zig and Zag coming on was brilliant. And Dustin. Yeah. That was a great reveal. We, we, we were there, yeah. We, and we were had there. Anne Doyle and all sorts. It was great to be involved. It was great. Uh, Raymond! <laughs> it was brilliant to be involved because we thought you were dead. We thought that was it. We said, no, he's gone, isn't he? Gone. And they went, no, no, the class of Kildare, of class of 46, <laughs> there's one left. And that's where we were trying not to laugh. Because we couldn't believe it. It was the class of 81. 
We class of 81? Yeah. yeah. Actually, it's a lot of people listening right now. That still is ancient, isn't it? Oh, God, is that class 81 like sixth year? Yeah. That's when we did our leaving cert in 1981. Wow. <laughs> was there a leaving cert then? <laughs> Yes, did you? I just thought you just went to school at 15 and then you went to do a trade. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, uh, right. that's a tough life you have there. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, because I remember pre-decimalisation, I remember the shilling, the half crown. Do you remember any of those things? No, no. I don't. No. The so shilling, the half crown, that's in movies or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, shilling. Uh, the shilling. I do remember though, because this is Luke Kelly's uh, anniversary. Yes, it is. Joe going to talk yes. about it. I was in the, uh, in, in the brain rooms, that's where I used to work, you know, for years. And uh, the Dublinmers used to play there, like, uh, and they'd play a month all the way through. Now Luke was wasn't alive when I was there; yeah. he'd been replaced. But that's the first time I ever seen Billy Connolly. We spoke to you before about working in the Bremer. Yeah. you were a waiter. Yeah, it was like I used to collect glasses and do stuff like yes. that. And then your your dad was responsible for somebody going back on the beer oh, or something, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? He brought drink back to the drifters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He gave he gave drinks to the drifters and he shouldn't have given it to them. And <laughs> the Bremer, yeah, they played there for. And one one night I was sitting there and Shane McGowan turned up with uh, with uh, Terence Trent Derby. Wow. And they played on stage and they did the Irish Rover, the whole lot of them. The Dubliners, Tennis Trent Derby and Shane McGowan did the, did the Irish Rover. He, you know, people give out about phones at gigs. Yeah, yeah, I but know. You, you'd be wishing that there was a phone at that gig. Yeah, but Just get that on tape. That's my story though. All the elves and elves can't remember. Right. That used to be, oh, was great. Your own story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, like, we've, we've spoken about you on the Late Late Show before and people have seen that footage. But... Uh, what I didn't, and I think that this was in the book, but I didn't get a chance to talk to you about it, that, that, that you, did you sneak into a Billy Connolly gig when you were yeah. 14 or 15? 16. 16? Uh, yeah, into Olympia. Right. Yeah, there was a, I don't know if they still do, but this is a great way of getting a free ticket into Olympia. Whereas uh, uh, the bounces years ago used to just go, when the show started, they'd all leave the main door and go into the main arena. Right. But that leaves the boxes open. You can just walk into the boxes there on the outside. And that's what you did? We, yeah, me, me, right. yeah, we just walked in and watched Billy Connolly. I've never seen that like it. But it's a weird angle to watch it at because I say I was the only comic in the world after watching Billy Connolly who said, I'm, not, I'm never doing that. Look what he had to do. Because I could see what he was looking at. Because in the box you can see the stage and the ah, audience. Yes, yes. And the sea of people. I was going, how's he doing that on his own? That's insane stuff. Do you know what I mean? So, no, couldn't do that at Here all. you are. Here you are. Well, here I am now. Yes. Yeah, I'm still yeah. waiting. I'm yeah. still waiting for me for the other job. Yeah. Uh, have you ever met Billy Connolly? No, I never did. It's such a shame. As I said, sorry, I only seen him that day yeah. in the Bremer rooms. He came because he was good friends of the Dubliners and all them because he was a folk, yes. folk head. Yeah. And he just, he came to an anniversary of Luke Kelly. It must have been only like five years or something. And I just served him a pint. I gave, brought him his pint over. That was it. Jason Byrne there talking about the legendary Billy Connolly and also his TV show Last One Laughing Ireland on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Back on this morning's um, Oliver Callan and Gerald D is the community engagement manager with the National Ambulance Service. In an effort to increase community volunteers, the service is providing cardiac first responder training nationwide. You know, we're strongly of the belief now that communities save lives. And, you know, while we would like to have an ambulance on every corner, you know, to be able to respond to a call you know, sure. as quickly as yeah. possible. And we will always ensure that, you know, the nearest ambulance is sent to the sickest person first. But it's not always the case. Ireland is very rural, very sparsely, um, geographically it's sparse. So by having community first responders there, it allows communities to be trained 
on how to use CPR and how to use a defibrillator. And it just means then that if something like a cardiac arrest, which is probably, I suppose, it's the most serious call that we would deal with, mm-hmm. when that cardiac arrest comes in, they'll get an automated text message from the computer system and they'll respond ahead of the ambulance. Um, and that's the idea of, I Very suppose, good. being a first responder is that they're in their community, they're u- uniquely located that they are able, in a lot of cases, to get to the house first. They'll all get the alert, obviously. And so they like, all get the alert, yeah, via alert. text. And um, do we have many of them at the moment? So at the moment, we have 259 active community first responder groups around the country. Um, I suppose, like everything else, COVID had its impact. Um, we did actually have to stand down the community first responder network Really? Um, when the pandemic came into place, because I suppose, look, it was it was a time of uncertainty. Yeah, we didn't know how much danger there was going to be with sending, particularly volunteers, for sure, yeah, um, into people's houses. But I suppose they're such a unique bunch of people, and they are so community spirited that no sooner did the you know did we stand them down from frontline duty where they're standing themselves back up again and they were out there Very delivering much. medication and shopping and, you know, and eventually they actually came in and amalgamated back into the ambulance service and assisted us with um, vaccination centres and swab centres oh, really? and, and things. So it just goes to show, you know, the community spirit is yeah. out there. Fully voluntary. Fully voluntary. Um, now, I suppose our job, I there's myself and a team of... Um, six community engagement officers and we have a business support section as well who give full support at all times to these community first responder groups and the idea being that when they make contact with us we will go out we'll host an information night we'll explain actually how easy this is and how easy it is to set it up um, and we'll guide them the whole way through to getting their first call and the first response, uh, what they have to do is easy, is what you're saying. So when I say easy, I mean responding to the call isn't the easy part, but getting set up is actually quite it's easy. Very setable. And all yeah. training is, training. you know, is provided by the National Ambulance Service and a network of volunteer instructors we have around the country. So it's relatively um, a quick process to get a community set up. Are you looking for someone in particular? Is there is there people you know who shouldn't uh, partake or? Well. It's open to anybody. I mean, yeah. once you're over the age of 18, um, you know, you're physically able to perform CPR yes. and, you know, you're able to take part in any training that we provide. Some of the training is online and then the physical aspect of CPR. It can be quite demanding on yeah. the body. You know, it's 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 very, very physical. So while um, it's open to everybody, we do, you know, like people to be aware that it is a, a fairly physical um it is, but you'll be trained. You'll be trained how to do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. All yeah. training is there. And we, we would always train people in teams as well. So, you, you know, you're generally not there on your own. You can swap over and wait until help arrives then. Very good. So they're in rural areas at the moment. Do you have ones in urban communities as well? And oh, we have them everywhere. So, they're I mean, um, like you'd have a number of community first responder groups active in the Dublin area. Um, we have them in Cork. We have them in Limerick, Galway. And I suppose where it all started was back in 2005 in rural Wicklow. Um, it was down a, in a, a place called Dunlavin. Um, and they, they realised that the journey time at that time for an ambulance to get to them was, you know, just taking that little bit extra because of the road network uh, wasn't as good back then. Yeah. And that's where it began. That's where, I suppose, the as we call them, the grandfathers, the two Johns, they're known as, um, they set this up and it just grew from there and it's continuing to grow around the country. It's just fantastic. It sounds amazing. Explain to us the chain of survival, this idea. 
Yeah, so the chain of survival where it really comes into play with a cardiac arrest is that somebody, we'd say the first link in it would be early recognition. So it's you realising that there's something wrong with somebody. Yeah. And, you know, in Ireland, we, we tend to brush things off, you know, it's particularly with chest pains and things. It's a, you know, it's a bit of indigestion. I must have eaten something <laughs> wrong. And, and, you know, but it, it's recognising... Better not cause a fuss here. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We won't cause a fuss, and particularly in a restaurant. I'm probably having a heart attack, but I don't want to make a show of myself. Absolutely. <laughs> the and, and, you know, sometimes then that heart attack can develop into a cardiac arrest. But mm. getting back to the chain of survival, it's, it's recognising early that something is wrong. And activating the emergency services, yeah. ringing one one two nine nine nine. Um, they will one one two. That's the EU wide one. One isn't one one two is nine 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 is what most people know, isn't it? It is. It's the one that's that, you know most people do know. Yeah. And in fact, you know we do have people ask us about nine one one because they see oh, it, God, they see it so much on the TV. Yeah. And and believe it or not, nine one one will actually connect you to the Irish emergency services as well. Um, but again, it's recognising that something is wrong. And getting help organised, at least it's on the way. Yeah. And then if it's if it's a cardiac arrest, that your hands on chest straight away, performing CPR, sending someone for the nearest defibrillator. Where is that nearest defibrillator? Well, you really don't know, mm. particularly if you're not in, uh, not from the community where right, this is yes. happening. Yeah. But if the defibrillator is registered with the National Ambulance Service, uh, we have a database of locations. But unfortunately, we only have approximately. Three and a half thousand registered, and what that means is, if you were to ring in and say that it was a cardiac arrest, we could tell you where the nearest one is. Yeah, okay. But we can only do that if it's registered, which can be done through the ambulance service website. And of course, the defibrillator is not much use if you don't have the community first responder who knows how to use it. Well, in fact, a defibrillator is designed for any member of the public to be able to use it because the minute you turn it on, it then takes over and it, it tells starts, you exactly to you. what to do. It'll start talking. Um, a lot of them have illuminated screens and, you know, and everyone acts the exact same way. You turn it on, you put the pads on the chest and you let the machine tell you exactly what to do. So I suppose the fear in Ireland is starting to go um, around the use of a defibrillator. Yeah. People always thought, you know, what if I do more harm? And the same when it comes to CPR, what if I do more harm? <laughs> well, it's better to do CPR for somebody um, who needs it than to stand back and do nothing. And likewise with the defibrillator, it's better to put the pads on the chest. The machine will not shock somebody if they don't need to be shocked. Right. So it's you can't actually go wrong. Gerald D, Community Engagement Manager with the National Ambulance Service, talking to Oliver Callan this morning. You can find out more about the drive to increase community volunteers at becomeacfr.ie. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, the RTE Concert Orchestra is celebrating 100 years of Puccini and Claire Byrne spoke to soprano Celine Byrne. The item kicked off with a sample from Puccini's O Mio Babino Caro. is here why does that bring a tear to my eye and make the hair stand on my neck I don't know I don't know but I think classical music does that in general and especially the work of Puccini which we just heard Oh Mio Babino Caro which means Oh My Beloved Father it's probably the most famous of all the soprano repertoire out there 
along with the tenors Nessendorma. I wish the Sopranos could have a Nessendorma. You know the Nessendorma? Nessendorma. You know, da, 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 da. I'd love one of those songs. I feel like just sitting here and letting you get on with it now. <laughs> I have a concert fair. <laughs> Listen, you're celebrating Puccini with the RTE Concert Orchestra. This yes. is a, a night to celebrate his work. Absolutely. And he means a lot to you and has played a huge role in your career. Just tell us a little bit about that link for you. Has indeed, actually, to be fair. Um, I call myself the hashtag Puccini girl because I sing so much Puccini. And this year is the celebration, uh, 100 years of um, of anniversary. So we're doing two concerts, one in the concert hall, which is sold out. And then we have another one in Wexford, the National Opera House in Wexford. And I suppose Puccini means a lot to me in my life because I started off, I made my debut in 2010, singing the role of Mimi in uh, Puccini's La Boheme. And then that brought me to a lot of different stages around the world. And I just finished the last opera I did was before Christmas in the Borgosh Energy Theatre with Irish National Opera, which was La Boheme. And the next one <laughs> is Guess, <laughs> La Boheme. So I've done a lot of Puccini. I've sung many of his roles. He wrote beautifully for uh, the soprano voice. He loved sopranos and he loved the female voice, but his orchestrations are amazing. I don't want to bore your listeners too much, but um, if you just dwell into the world of Puccini, it's, it's actually really exciting. Oh, do. No, that's what we it's want to hear. It's just absolutely fantastic. Because he's an interesting character, isn't he? Himself yes. as a person. Yeah. Tell us a bit about him. I just think... Um, I would have loved to have been around when he was alive because he he loved his fame and he was very famous when he was alive. So he got to enjoy himself. With, when you compare him to people like Beethoven, uh, who, who didn't have uh, the chance to actually enjoy his fame. They got none of the benefit yeah, of what they were creating. You know to die before to become famous. Well, this is it. But he, <laughs> he reveled in it when he had it, did he? He did. He was a bit of a player as well oh. with the girls, you know. So when I say he liked the female voice, I think he liked the female anatomy as well. And he got into a bit of hot water in that regard, did he? he? Or was he he celebrated for being a player? No, no, no. There was a lot of controversy around him. But also he had his demons as well. He had hard times because um, even when he wrote his famous Madame Butterfly, it was uh, rejected and he had to go back and... uh, and it kind of reinvent the wheels so as to speak that so he took it away and he was very critical about um, how he should edit it and fix it and then put it back again and mm-hmm. and then release it again in 1904, 1905. Imagine being the person who said to Puccini, can you go back and fix yeah, can that Yeah, can you sort that one out? <laughs> oh, it's a bit too long. I don't like that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, the, the tragedy that you referred to and the trouble that he got in, mm. will you tell us the story about his housekeeper? It's just so, such a tragic tale. Oh, his housekeeper. Yeah, well... Um, there was rumours of Puccini having many affairs and one such rumour was that he was having an affair with his housekeeper. But um, this is all aside now, Claire. Well, listen, anyway. I know, but this is what we want, isn't it? But um, it, 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 she, she didn't have an affair with him. It wasn't true. No, it wasn't true because when they did an autopsy on her, they found that she was still a virgin. So there was no such rumours. I think he tried to deflect from the fact that he was having an affair with somebody closer to home. Okay. And uh, so there was a lot of tragedy. And I think because he had tragedy in his life, he he injected that into his music also because with all his his female heroines, they eventually... um, tragically die you know in Lab OM she dies of consumption but um, the rest like you have Madame Butterfly who who cuts her head off with a samurai sword Tosca jumps off uh, a, a building yeah. and um, then we have Liu 
who kills herself. And actually, Liu, the role of Liu, if the servant girl in Turandot, was the last opera he wrote. And the last piece he wrote was an aria for, for Liu. And after she killed herself, I think he took time on how he would develop the end of the opera, but he never mm-hmm. had the chance because he passed away. So... I heard you telling Tommy Tiernan yeah. that story about you playing, you know, the role where you're dying with consumption at the end and how concerned yeah. your dad was about I know. you. Are God you all right? God. Yeah, may he rest but in peace these past now three years. So anytime I sing it, I think of him. Yeah. I'd say you do. Yeah. I'd say you do. Will we take another track? Um, Lovely. Let's, let's have a listen to what this. We going we'll to tell you about it afterwards. Sorry, I was interrupting that at the wrong moment, but I was just That's asking. Okay, we were having a chat. We were having it was a great. Chat. I was asking Celine what it's like to listen to herself performing, which is mm. what you're doing just there. But mm. you're 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 comfortable with it. You're okay with it. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel along with myself, listening to myself, because I really put a lot into it when I'm singing. There's a lot of emotion involved. I'm very connected to what I sing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Soprano Celine Byrne talking Puccini with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme is compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget, you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>